Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. It's me, Panel Beater, with uh, Dr. Sharma and uh, Neonatal. Good to see you both. You keeping okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, uh, you know, things have stabilised a bit. I think everyone knows what they're doing in my family, patients, everyone. How's uh, sanity levels for you guys? Do you know what? They've improved. Yeah. They've absolutely improved, and that's, you know... That's, let's be honest, because things have stabilised in this country enormously. And I think people have started to come to a common understanding of what's at stake and what we need to do. And I was really relaxed by the stats showing how the amount of movement of people, pedestrians, traffic, etc. is reduced. So I'm mm. a lot calmer. Particularly over the, over the Easter weekend with the, the massive drop and people doing the right thing. But I was saying to Dr Sharma before the show started that the last time we met, I don't think that this is the world that we... Um, we would be living in. I think I think that Australia's done amazingly over the past month, and the general public, uh, the government, the the scientists, the the doctors, they're all they're all on their A game. Yeah, there's a I've I've bit nerdy. I've set up uh, aspects of my uh, Twitter stream, which is just international COVID news. So I've got like a parallel stream that's domestic COVID and and international and it. And I think, uh, Neonatal, you're right. There's a lot to be pretty impressed by, mm. the Australian response. Um, I'm sure we can all find bits and pieces that we would pick at, um, and, that, and that's fine. Um, it's probably the first time anybody's been dealing with such a thing. Um, but in comparison to our friends, for example, in North America, you know, the United States. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, I, I heard a horrifying stat yesterday that I had to work through the maths to be sure. Um, which is that, you know, and the, the, the silver lining here is at least we can put the whole comparison to flu myth at rest uh, because, you know, th- there's that common comparison that happens and the truth is the seasonal flu kills 0.1% of people it infects at most uh, and in New York City, 0.14% of people have died. Not of people infected with COVID, of the entire population of New York City. And 0.14 of a big number is a lot of people. Well, I think New York around about... Is about fifty percent of the American deaths, and it's around about forty in the United forty thousand in the United States. About twenty thousand New York. Is that right? I think it might be. I'm not sure. I think it might be just slightly over ten thousand. Oh, uh, okay. At this point, uh, but yeah, it's a huge percentage. And the point being that it's still ongoing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, look, we've got a chock-a-block show coming up, Doctor Sharma. You've been able to. Um, um, uh, bring in a couple of uh, really impressive guests. For, I'm for so us excited tonight. to have yeah. these guests, and I know I'm excited because I only needed one coffee today. <laughs> uh, I'm just uh, the adrenaline's ready to. Yeah, absolutely. Run through. Beyond excited. So tell us who have we got. Yeah, so we have Professor James McCaw, who has been one of the the chief uh, experts the government has been resorting to. You've heard that line all the time. Where we are relying on expert opinion. He's one of those experts in charge of the modelling for Australia. We've also got uh, Dr Ruth Mitchell, neurosurgeon and activist, who will be speaking about the impact of COVID-19 on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities and how we should anticipate that. So very excited with both our guests. Brilliant. Well, look, um, Neonatal, you uh, kicked off a uh, another one of our radiotherapy polls during the week. You were asking about how people were occupying themselves in lockdown, perhaps getting a new hobby. What have you found so far? 
Yeah, so um, some very interesting responses. We got um, quite a few people learning uh, how to play the guitar or play a new uh, musical instrument. Uh, a lot of gardening, a lot of reading. It's all it's all very wholesome and very lovely. Um, make sure you tune into the uh, end of the show where you can hear what we've all been doing oh. to occupy ourselves. <laughs> um, and in the meantime, people can still go to the uh, social media feed, right? And yeah. um, and add uh, add their thing. There's a couple in there that have really caught my yeah. <laughs> caught my eye. Um, but let's uh, come back with a little bit of news. We're going to talk uh, med students in the health sector. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Neonatal, uh, you've got an update for us on med students being drawn into the health sector workforce during yeah. COVID-19. Yeah, so I think we mentioned last month about this, this sash role that's um, the Victorian medical schools have been taking up. It's students assisting healthcare. Um, and it's really been, I think it was always meant to be a factor of medical schools in the coming years, but it's been really pushed to assist with the COVID response. And we've seen some quite positive results, um, particularly from, um, from my knowledge, the Western Health was one of the first to get uh, their program up and running. They're basically using some of their final year um, and older medical students to uh, become clinical assistants, which is basically uh, kind of a pre-intern role, um, assisting with different clinical tasks that are up to their their own uh, skill level. Um, I think that's one of the big things, though, that we're not pushing anyone past their skill level. We're using them what they... Uh, have been trained to do. So just compare and contrast it for people who aren't familiar with um, how this training works in so-called ordinary times. Mm. What, what's the big difference that's happening now compared to... So the big difference is that um, although a lot of medical students' uh, training is based around clinical tasks and doing um, being involved with patient care, it's not this, these tasks are not primarily for the students' own education it's primarily to assist healthcare so a lot of it is more menial tasks a lot of um more swab taking more data entry more phone calls but uh they're getting paid is one of the big big tenants um this is paid work for and that's great for a lot of students and it is um making a tangible difference to how the healthcare can respond system can respond to covid in fact, actually, I didn't think of that element, actually. The fact that they're getting paid, on it's kind of got two sides, really, doesn't mm. it? On one hand, fantastic in this time of financial hardship, yeah. you pay, students have got an option. On the other hand, is that almost uh, too strong an incentive at a time when people are backed mm. into a corner financially? Uh, you know, so the, it's a bit of an ethical minefield in it many is. ways. And there is a lot of different ethical principles that we could be discussing here. Um, so one of the big ones that I think a lot of the medical schools are taking on is autonomy, which is respect for uh, an individual's right to choose and a right to make decisions for themselves. But uh, as Dr. Chalmers said, there's a lot of bias in the way that we can dis- we can make these decisions. A lot of students um, may feel that these clini- they're missing out on clinical tasks, yeah. missing out on clinical experiences by not doing this. Well, sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. And, the, of course, the money. But um, I think... The positive thing from the medical schools is that that they've very strongly pushed that this is not going to um, not a mandatory part of your clinical experience. You're not missing out by doing it. You're simply there to help. 
I've got a, a slight parallel from my own um, experience here that, that sets off a little bit of an alarm bell. I'm mm. just trying to picture an interview, you know, when when things go back to normal, a job interview, mm. and the uh, employers say to the candidate, tell us about what you did during COVID-19. Mm. And so a, uh, a student who, for whatever reason, and there's lots of really good reasons why you wouldn't join the health sector workforce in that capacity right now, um, is going to be applying for jobs in competition with people who are saying, well, during COVID-19, I did this, this, this and this. Mm. There's, a, there's a dilemma there, I think. It is, and it's quite concerning because you are right that, you know, it'll be a natural, a natural question to ask, you know, what did you do during this time? How did you um, assist the healthcare system in this time? Mm. But... A lot of the students, that, there are a lot of students that I know that are immunosuppressed or yep. have immunosuppressed family members, have young children that they need to care for. You know, there's a myriad of reasons why they can't be, they just simply can't be assisting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you Tough going. Hey, um, thanks for that. Thanks for keeping us up to speed on, on the students because it's a huge um, contribution mm. that the, um, the workforce, and I gather the percentage uptake is enormous, it's you know, huge. notwithstanding that maybe some of them feel under a little bit of duress. Yeah, I think uh, from my medical school alone, all but one student uh, signed up to uh, be part of the, the, the database for um, these roles. So. Yep. That, and I hear the rumour of the student not signing up was that that student never answered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. That was quite literally the, uh, the reason. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You know, there's this one question that's been driving all of human behaviour over the last four months, and that's what's going to happen next with COVID-19. That void of concern is being filled by a lot of conjecture, ranging from back-of-the-envelope calculations <laughs> by my mates to complex graphs blogged on Medium. But the government's been relying on something far more sophisticated, namely statistical modelling. Australia's own modelling has been released quite recently, but the work has been conducted for months by our special guest. James McCaw is a professor of mathematical biology and an infectious diseases epidemiologist. He holds several appointments and a long list of publications behind him. And along with Professor Jody McVernon, he's informing Australia's response to the COVID-19 pandemic by guiding a team of nearly 40 modellers, epidemiologists and biostatisticians. So we are very happy to have with us Professor James McCaw. Professor, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, now, Professor, we should probably just begin with that word modelling uh, in terms of what it means, because from what I understand, the purpose of the modelling so far that we've had in Australia is actually changing from, from this point onwards. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, so, I mean, model is a, is a word familiar to a lot of scientists. We, we talk about animal models where the model is a surrogate for, for the problem we're most interested in. And for me, I work with mathematical models. So these are models that we develop to try and um, understand how a disease, uh, in this case COVID-19, might be uh, spreading. And... Um, the first thing that we've been doing in Australia, and this was back in February really, was doing what-if scenario um, exploration. So we thought, well, we know that the um, disease has certain characteristics from China, and we looked at the uh, Australian health system, and we tried to make our best informed um, opinions on 
what Australia uh, might be faced with in, in the future and, or, or back in February in the future, that means today. And uh, that's the work that we, uh, that we released a few weeks ago now uh, that shows what Australia needed to do in terms of expansion of um, health sector capacity and, and other issues like that. And how about the, the modelling that's been released more recently? What's the, the so, aim of going forward? Yeah, so it's completely different. Um, so so the, the scenarios were, were exactly that, scenarios. We were saying if we could do certain things like um, enact quarantine and isolation, if we could uh, change our mixing behaviour by a certain amount, we might expect that the uh, epidemic curve would look different. Now, Professor... What we've been... Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, keep going. Yeah. Um, so what we um, have been doing more recently is actually examining the current Australian data very carefully. And we can all see it in the news. We've seen an increase in cases and now, thankfully, over the last few weeks, uh, steadily decreasing new cases. Mm -hmm. And we're now analysing that data to try and understand the uh, tempo and the characteristics of transmission in Australia. Now, that brings up the, um, the idea of the characteristics of the virus and what makes it um, such a, you know, a, a potent um, spreader in societies like China and America and, and potentially Australia. Um, with things like asymptomatic transmission, I was wondering if you could comment on how that impacts your model and how you've had to adapt um, your model to to fit the specific characteristics of this virus. Yeah, it, it, it's an it's a really important aspect. So, um, I mean, we're still learning a lot about the transmission characteristics of this new virus. Uh, at the start, back you know a few months ago, because of its genetic relatedness to, to SARS, we. Um, based a lot of our preliminary work um, in Australia and overseas around how we understood SARS spread. Um, it looks more and more different um, the longer we um, observe this spreading. Uh, it looks like there is significant, or it's almost, it's very clear now that there is significant uh, transmission prior to symptoms. And then to your particular question, we're still unsure, but it looks more and more like there is quite a lot of asymptomatic transmission. So this is um, infection and, and transmission onwards from people who and never show symptoms at any stage or have such mild symptoms that uh, they wouldn't really be aware of it. Um, our models, this is the, it's also the case for um, influenza that there's asymptomatic transmission. So there are well-established models to account for it. Um, getting a handle on the details of that for, for coronavirus is, to be honest, a work in progress both in Australia and around the world. Uh, Professor McCaw, uh, it's Panel Beta here. Great to have you on the show. Just coming back to the um, organising of the modelling scenarios, there'll be a, yeah. a, a range of assumptions that you need to make. Some of those assumptions are founded on something might resemble precedent, but I'm sure there must be heaps of assumptions where you're, for want of a better word, doing um, educated guessing almost, you know, about um, service operations, efficiency and effectiveness of services, um, you know, health infrastructure. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how the models come together accounting for those sorts of things? Yeah, so, so, so you're exactly right. There's a lot of um, uh, models, uh, I think a really good way to characterise them is that they are a way of logically organising your thoughts and dealing with all of the um, tidbits of information and the disparate 
understanding and, and partial views you have of the system and then trying to put all of that together in um, the most logical possible framework that you can. So different modelling groups assemble that information in, in slightly different ways because there's so much uncertainty. And actually the way that... Um, um, it's definitely how it happened in Australia and it's how it happens around the world, is that advice and policy direction is, is informed by many models. Um, and sometimes we, we look um, for when different mathematical models all point in the same direction or where different mathematical models point in different directions. It, it suggests that different assumptions sort of mattered in a, in a decision-making sense. Um, and at that point... Um, all of the modelling groups might go back and and re-examine their assumptions and try and think of what data, what empirical data they could, um, uh, you know, get or, or suggest needs to be um, obtained to to improve those models. So it's there's a, a feedback loop here. We're all scientists, so um, ultimately we're guided by empirical evidence, um, and the models are just a way of assembling that and, and exploring it, but. I mean, what you're getting at, and I completely agree, is that models aren't the truth. Models are a way of thinking and a way of organising our thoughts to make decisions. You know, you bring up an interesting point there about how, as scientists, you, you analyse empirical evidence. And mm. I think it's been one of the quite comforting things I've seen where I don't know if leadership on a world level, let alone an Australian level, has always had a great relationship with I guess, listening to, to experts and being guided by them. And yet I think the signs have been really quite encouraging in the last month. Um, you know, we're getting yeah. some chief health officers speak equal time to, to politicians, et cetera. What do you think about this, this evolving role of expertise and what we should expect and want in future? Yeah, well, I think um, we've seen differences across different parts of the world. Um, uh, we could look across the largest ocean on the planet to, a, to another country where it doesn't seem to be going as well. Or, um, and there are huge controversies about how politicians um, who shall remain nameless uh, are responding <laughs> and thinking about um, the advice from the scientists. Um, in Australia, I, I really think it's been different, um, at least for, for coronavirus. There, there are many broader issues in society uh, where science has a role to play and the experience might be different. But for coronavirus in Australia, um, I was on a WHO call in around the 16th or 17th of January, where um, it first to the modelling community became clear that there might be something very, very important and very threatening on the radar. And by late January, we were, um, Jody McVernon and I and, and our members of our team, uh, we were working with Canberra, um, with the, the Department of Health, to try and determine what we might be faced with. Um, with a lot of uncertainty, of course, so early on, and um, suggested that this was important, this was potentially incredibly serious. And, and from that early time onwards, so we're talking late January, early February, uh, the Australian government was engaged with and listening to the public health and epidemiological community um, and the mathematicians in it, like me, are but one part of that. So in Australia, it's been a success to date, um, and we'll fingers crossed it, it remains that way over the coming uh, months and years. Well, speaking of that progress we've made, there's been this clear downtrend and kind of stability in terms of us keeping the, mm -hmm. the, the numbers down. There's been a lot of conversation from the community in terms of eliminating the, the virus. And yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Is that something that's achievable? And even if it is achievable, where do we go from there? Yeah, so elimination is 
incredibly appealing. Uh, we're talking about staying locked down hard enough to r- literally have the virus no longer exist in the Australian community. It is achievable in a in a narrow sense in that if we were able to um, stay, well, probably mix less than we are now um, for a number of months, it locally and potentially all across Australia, you could see the virus no longer exist. But it doesn't, it's not, to me, a, um, it's not a long-term solution because um, the virus is spreading all around the world. We live in a global community and even with border closures and, and, and biosecurity restrictions, I, I think it's still, it's simply inevitable that we would have the virus um, re-enter the population at some stage and probably... Um, semi-regularly. And so that means that you have to have, even if you did achieve elimination, um, having a um, gold-plated, beyond current capability surveillance system is, um, it's absolutely essential. And that surveillance system needs to be in place for a suppression strategy as well. And so I think elimination is, while it's appealing, I think it's it's very difficult. It would come with some benefits and some costs in terms of trying to get there, and then it's still not the end of it. It would still only be a first step in what's a, a much longer um, journey that uh, society um, has to uh, go along here. So this brings up the idea of um, the potential for a vaccine and um, mm. having a, a immune population. How uh, realistic do you think this is, and what are some of the difficulties um, of getting a vaccine for? Yeah, so I'm. Um, I mean, I'm not a, a vaccinologist. I'm not a vaccine expert, but I've been engaged with the communities um, for a long time because uh, pandemic response plans for influenza also um, uh, are sort of influenced by the timelines for vaccine availability. So, I mean, my understanding is that. Um, a vaccine is sort of a minimum of 12 months and potentially 18, 24 months away. And then what we need to think about is what would the properties of that vaccine be? Um, would it be a vaccine like um, is, is used in our childhood immunisation system where the vaccine is highly effective, it provides really good sterilising immunity and, it, you know, for our childhood diseases, we've essentially been able to come close to either eliminating them as a public health issue um, or would it be more like an influenza vaccine? It kind of helps people. It definitely protects against mortality and more serious morbidity in certain age groups. We have to take the vaccine every year. Some years it works well. Some years it's not so good. Which one, which, what vaccine we may end up developing and discovering for coronavirus um, is unclear and uh, therefore um, how much it changes our relationship uh, with the virus is, is, is quite unclear to me still. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting from everything you're saying, despite the, the good progress we've made, it, it sounds like we can't uh, turn down the intensity uh, of our measures, even if we do achieve elimination or, or any of these things. Uh, you know, we've got to hold out a bit longer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I read something um, from the United States media um, overnight that... Um, and I think it's, you know, with broad brush, it's accurate. It says that, you know, we've got to come to terms with the fact that we're 10% of the way through this um, uh, experience and sort of through our interaction with the coronavirus. It, it, we'd love to think that, it, you know, with case numbers declining, that 
um, declining in Australia and sort of flattening curve in, in the US and elsewhere that maybe we're, we're coming to the peak of our, our relationship with this virus. But I think it's, it's the very beginning still. Um, and the, uh, the world will look different. Um, we can't be in lockdown for years, of course not. Uh, humans aren't designed that way, or humans aren't designed, but uh, humans are social animals, social creatures. Um, so we need to find ways to live with this virus. Uh, we can't avoid it. And, um, you know, a vaccine hopefully will help us live with it. But, but you know, the, 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 the future is uncertain here, is what I would say. I've just got a, a question that occurs to me about the um, the... You talked about uh, being on a uh, on a, a phone call with people in the modelling mm. community, and I'm sure uh, people with your expertise have been mobilised right around the world to deal with COVID. It mm. leaves me wondering: there are other there are other health issues going on in the world. Um, are people are there people who are sort of uh, leaving themselves aside from the COVID attention and still doing the the modelling and the epidemiological work at a global scale on some of the other issues that are at hand? Um, yeah, there are, and it's it's so important. And it reminds me of a, another aspect of this. Um, so I'm, I'm going to turn your short question into a, a long a long one. Um, we know that um, our response to coronavirus and um, our keeping our hospitals um, prepared. Um, there, there are there are influences on other diseases in in Australia as well, of course. So um, there's much more to our response here than our health response here than just coronavirus. So. And then to your question, yeah, I, I'm also part of um, uh, a malaria elimination um, centre that works, and, and the, you know the majority of the people in in that community are continuing to to do their malaria work. Um, one thing, coronavirus still touches there as well. Um, we're concerned in that malaria community that. Um, as, as limited resources, particularly in um, low- and middle-income countries, are diverted towards responding to coronavirus, what might happen to malaria control programs, childhood vaccination or immunisation programs? And so the, the onwards health issues that might arise from the current acute event um, are... Are, are of concern, and, and I guess the, the, the good thing is there's lots of people also trying to pay attention to those to anticipate them and, and mitigate those issues. Mm. Professor, that uh, it's been incredibly enlightening, and thank you so much for shedding light on the mysteries hitherto of, of modelling. And I think mm. I speak for a lot of us when I say we are indebted for your work uh, on COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We've got a very special guest with us who's going to comment on, I think, something that I used to believe about COVID-19. There's this concept, of course, that it's something that's going to affect everybody, true. But then the next step beyond that, which is that it's a, an equaliser in many ways. And the truth is much more complicated than that, I think. Uh, and to discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, we are joined by Dr Ruth Mitchell. And it's hard to put this person in a box. Uh, she's a Melbourne-trained neurosurgeon and a structural biologist. 
and a long-time activist. She's been a long-time member of the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and this led to her work with ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, an organisation she co-chairs, which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, she's recently co-authored a letter of demands to Ken White, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, demanding urgent action to prevent catastrophic impact of COVID-19 onto our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. So we are very grateful to be joined by Dr Ruth Mitchell. Ruth, good day. Oh my goodness, it's so exciting to be here. It's like an outing without leaving my home. <laughs> We're pretty excited in here, I can tell you. So, Ruth, I've got a big question for you to just open with, okay? Now, we've clearly made some good progress, as Professor James McCall said, we're only 10% of the way through, sure. Um, and, but in a way, I find the conversation is kind of getting ahead of itself. People are talking about exit strategies and relaxing measures. But paradoxically, you're raising alarm and impending harms to our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. So why are they at risk? I think um, it's just such an important question. And as we contemplate um, the realities of coronavirus, we have to consider that um, when this thing breaks, it, it doesn't break even. And just as, um, you know, human beings are the ones that spread the virus, um, coronavirus uh, discriminates because we do. And um, there's been a lot of talk about the pre-existing conditions, um, such as cardiac and so forth, that make someone more likely to um, become unwell or do very poorly if they get coronavirus. Uh, but I think what I'm concerned about are the other pre-existing conditions, um, poverty, um, colonisation, discrimination, racism. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is that um, the discourse focuses very much on what's happening for, you know, people in the mainstream, but I'd like to think a bit more about what's happening at the margins. Um, and there's a number of things that we've asked for, um, we, uh, as you mentioned, um, under the leadership of um, uh, Margie Beavis, who's a, a GP here in in, uh, in Melbourne and also my co-chair with ICANN, um, we, we wrote a letter to Ken Wyatt and we, we really uh, could think of a few things that we thought would be helpful to mitigate harms to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, both um, rural and uh, remote and also urban communities. Um, and I think things like considering uh, release of Aboriginal minor offenders from custody to prevent deaths in custody from coronavirus of Aboriginal young people, certainly something we've considered um, and advocated for, thinking about guaranteed supplies of staples to Aboriginal communities in a time when a lot of um, travel is being cut back and certainly commercial airlines have all but shut down, thinking about what non-essential FIFO workers should be doing going in and out of um, rural and regional communities, and, um, and I think one of the other things that I've, I've been seeing when you look at coverage from this around the world is that people who don't speak English as a first language um, in, a, in a country where English is the, is the, is the lingua franca are, are really experiencing a degradation of care. And I'm concerned that that may be the case here as well. Um, and I think that in addition to health worker support and training, testing, isolation facilities, we also have to make sure we've got really clear, up-to-date information available, ideally in, in language, um, for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, communities so that they can understand um, as, as best as possible what they can do to um, protect their own health. Well said. Um, now, just to go back uh, two minutes, uh, you, you started to, to reel off some predisposing conditions 
and uh, I thought you were going to tell us some medical conditions, but you really cut to the core and talked about poverty and colonisation. And, and I guess the reality is that that leads to some, some very real, tangible uh, health issues that I think are going to be affecting our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Specifically, there's things like respiratory infections are far more common, uh, you know, smoking, of course, and these things play into COVID-19. You know, can you shed some light on just, just some other uh, broader health issues that are likely to very tangibly impact on people as a result of COVID-19? Certainly. So I think that um, when we think about um, people's um, living conditions, what we know is that being able to socially isolate in the way that's been recommended is a privilege. Um, and if you live in very high-density um, uh, living, uh, as many um, impoverished um, urban communities do, that becomes basically technically impossible. Um, and so I think that that's another way in which... Um, there's a real significant driver of of, uh, of the disease amongst um, urban Aboriginal communities. Um, and then extreme remoteness is also um, a, a risk because of um, getting basic supplies in, but also there are concerns around the cold chain for medications that might require to be kept cold. Um, that, that sort of factor is really significant. And we know that the recommendations now are that, um, you know, for, for um, members of the general population, anybody over 60 should be regarded at higher risk, but in Aboriginal communities, um, the number is actually 50, and that's because the burden of chronic disease is just understood to be a lot higher. Um, I mean, I think the issue is that it's not always understood to be a lot higher, which is why I will continue to reiterate that that's the case. And so people are manifesting um, sort of the kind of physiology of, of really old age at a younger actual biological age. Um, and we need to be really mindful that when we're thinking about how health services are allocated and provided, that we don't end up um, with the kind of discriminatory, ableist um, uh, parameters in terms of who's going to be able to access care um, that would potentially lead to significant population reduction amongst our Aboriginal elders. Um, I think we need them. Now, Dr Mitchell, it's Neon Neonel here. Thank you again for coming on the show. I just wanted to um, uh, discuss that point a little bit further with... You mentioned that uh, things like overcrowding and uh, reduced access to healthcare and all of these systemic issues that have been present in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population for quite some time. Uh, what is the actual answer here? Do we avoid uh, these populations getting uh, exposed to the virus? Do we make systemic changes? What lessons can we learn from um, the the real dangers that these communities are facing from COVID and how do you think that this will change how we treat these populations moving forward? Um, look, I think that the answers lie from within um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and I'm really keen that we centre the voices of um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander leaders in this space. Um, I have previously been a member of the Indigenous Health Committee of the College of Surgeons, which is uh, which is my my professional college. And um, and on on Friday, um, the international sorry the Indigenous Health uh, Committee put out a, a statement on this. Um, and I think that the things that are emphasised there are really things I'd want to hammer home, which is that we've really got to consider inequities um, as we develop services to to manage uh, coronavirus threats. 
Um, and we have to acknowledge in the way that we respond to this challenge that it's not just coronavirus uh, morbidity and mortality, but also other conditions. And I was super happy to see, um, to hear Professor McCall um, mention the influences um, of what's happening here on other disease processes. Um, and I think the, the most important um, sort of thing that I think we have to learn from um, our dark past is that we have to um, we have to collect uh, meaningful data, hmm. um, and we have to uh, know what we're actually counting. Well, that's actually one of the fairly explicit uh, recommendations in this letter from the Indigenous Health Committee, which has been this requirement for high quality ethnicity data based on, and there's a term I have to be honest I wasn't familiar with, based on Indigenous data sovereignty. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this and, and why this matters in this context? Hmm. So this is so important. Um, indigenous data sovereignty is this idea that um, there is a right of Indigenous peoples to govern their collection, um, the ownership and the application of data, which is about Indigenous communities, their health, their well-being, their lands, um, and, uh, and their resources as well. And I think um, to put this in a historical perspective, um, we, we certainly have come a long way on this issue, but we're a long way from where we need to be with Indigenous data sovereignty. In the pandemic of 1918, um, we, can, we know from our, our colleagues um, across the ditch that the mortality for Māori people was seven times that of non-Māori um, uh, residents of New Zealand. Um, and you think, oh, well, that's an interesting statistic. It's pretty awful. What were the numbers in Australia? And here's how bad our data collection was in 1918. Um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people deaths were not recorded by Australian health authorities during the pandemic of 1918. Um, we don't even know the size of the impact of that pandemic on our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and that, to me, is a really devastating thing to not even have counted the number of deaths. Um, and so I think that's a very, very low baseline to be starting from, and we've got a long way to go. And it comes back to this principle of nothing about us without us. And so when we collect um, quality ethnographic data about uh, Indigenous uh, health and, and, and morbidity and mortality, we have to remember who the data belongs to, uh, and it needs to belong to Indigenous communities. Um, Dr. Mitchell, uh, where are we at with with that progress then? So if we've got that horror, horrific um, state of play 100 years ago and no doubt there wasn't much move on that for another 50 years or so, where are we at the moment? So I think we um, are sort of chugging along um, and I think that... Um, but I don't think there's any um, any cause to be like overwhelmingly optim optimistic or reassured. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for the leadership of um, organisations such as the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. I'm super excited to see a new generation of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors um, coming up through the ranks who are doing medicine in a fantastic new way and who are moving into leadership roles and are speaking up and speaking out um, for their communities and to their communities and to the rest of us um, to try and bring us up to speed. And I think, um, as always, there are some really significant differences in Aboriginality between Australia and New Zealand, but we learn an awful lot from our colleagues in New Zealand and from um, our, our Māori brothers and sisters. And certainly, I really want to affirm that 
um, within the College of Surgeons, we've had the benefit of the wisdom of years of uh, Maori work in this space, and I think they are probably farther ahead on, on uh, this than we are, and particularly acknowledge the leadership of um, Maxine Ronald, who's the chair of the Indigenous Health Committee, who's a, a proud Maori uh, woman and a, and a surgeon. Um, and I think that that is where those are the sort of glints of hope that I see. Um, and I also am encouraged by the fact that there are now platforms where we can have conversations like this. I think it's important um, that it doesn't always fall on the, on, the, on the heavy laden shoulders of our Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Māori um, brothers and sisters to talk about um, equity and um, health mm. uh, in the same sentence. And I think that for me, this is a matter of paying the rent. I live on unceded sovereign uh, territory of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and part of paying my respects to that community is um, is finding uh, ways to speak out on things that are um, unique threats. And uh, I think that we, we have to acknowledge that the threats to the health and well-being of Indigenous people um, extend way beyond coronavirus to every other disease stream. Um, and we have to do everything we can to make sure that uh, that health outcomes aren't, um, aren't, aren't undermined even further by this by this uh, terrible pandemic. Speaking of other disease streams, uh, one of the diseases that was explicitly uh, mentioned in this letter by the Indigenous Health Committee was was cancer, uh, very specifically. So, can you speak perhaps to, to why uh, cancer above other diseases that, that requires special attention here? Yeah, so I think that we know that looking after patients with with cancer is complicated, and a big part of uh, doing that is is that we have to be able to get um, get people to present uh, for whether it's screening or diagnosis and treatment of, of cancer. Um, and in many cancer streams, uh, the sooner presentation happens, the better the outcome. Um, and so, um, what we already know is that there are typically delays to diagnosis and treatment and real challenges with access to both diagnosis and treatment and ongoing follow-up uh, for members of Indigenous communities, um, both urban and, and rural and remote. And I think um, that in a season where most health services have been really redirected, redesigned, refocused on coronavirus-related um, challenges and looking after patients who are positive uh, for coronavirus, there certainly is a whole lot less operating going on from a surgical perspective, very significant cutbacks in the amount of operating that we're able to do. And I think that is right and it's appropriate in light of the shortages of particularly of PPE, um, personal protective equipment. I think that's necessary, but we have to think about the on cost of that. And we have to find ways of gently balancing that with the need to be able to continue to care for patients who are vulnerable, who are already on the margins, who have time-sensitive disease processes like cancer. The sooner they're diagnosed and treated, the better their, their outcomes are likely to be. Um, and so I think that's, that's why cancer has been highlighted particularly, because it's such a surgical um, disease process in most cases, but also because it, it's really so time-sensitive. So what you're saying is that we, in the coming months to years, we might see a shift away from the coronavirus um, burden of disease and shift towards more a greater burden of disease of these chronic health conditions like cancer, like chronic respiratory conditions and like chronic cardiac conditions? I think that's 
to be expected, and I also um, think that we should expect an uptick in mental health issues. Um, for most people, being um, cooped up in ho at home doing social isolating isn't isn't great for mental health, um, and um, being denied access to one's community. Um, while entirely appropriate for public health reasons, we have to acknowledge and count the cost of that on people's mental health, and particularly in communities where where that coming together, that collective, is such an important expression of who someone is as a human being. Dr Ruth Mitchell, thank you so much for shedding light on these issues and your activism uh, in, this, in this area. Um, you know, we're, we're very indebted for, for your work here, and it's, it's very easy to, to, to forget... Um, where the impacts of this are going to, to fall and break unevenly, as you said. Uh, coronavirus discriminates because we do. I think uh, I'm not going to forget that phrase for quite some time. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber... Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's pretty much time for us to call it quits. It's been fabulous um, being in the um, uh, in the conversations with our, our special guests, Professor James McCaw, a um, uh, mathematical biologist, epidemiologist. Or the expert. Or, or, or the expert. Capital T, capital E, the expert. And um, a big, big thanks to Dr Ruth Mitchell um, drawing our attention to... Um, some important issues dealing with COVID in relation to those um, living on the margins, especially our Indigenous people. Um, Dr Sharma, thank you very much. Neonatal, thank you very much. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Please catch us on social media. It's April Amnesty, so if you can, and not everybody can just at the moment, but if you can, um, support the station uh, through April Amnesty. There's a bunch of goodies being given away as prizes through the month. You're familiar with the drill. If you could um, get online, um, uh, that would be fabulous. But to all of you, most importantly, please um, stay safe in this time um, and keep you and yours well. Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.